Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Acts Acts chapter 5 to be particular. We will get to John. We'll get back to John next week. Today we're going to do something a little bit different as we look at a very important issue that the scripture is very clear about. Back in high school or in college, some of you may have read the poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge called The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. It was written in 1789, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. The entire poem is about the albatross. Back in the ancient days when sailors would go to sea, the albatross was a symbol of good luck. So if the albatross was flying overhead your ship, it meant smooth sailing. It meant that you would have um, a good, prosperous journey. And one day, this sailor, this captain, takes a crossbow and he kills the albatross. And the crew is shocked because this is a major sin. This, is, this means the, the ship is cursed. And so what the ancient mariner does is he takes the albatross and wears it around his neck as a symbol of the guilt and shame that he has to bear for cursing the ship. And here's what happens. All of his crew members die. And there's supernatural events that happen on the ship. This skeleton shows up along with this pale lady, and they roll dice to see who's going to live and who's going to die on the ship. Everybody dies except for the ancient mariner. He's by himself. Seven days, seven nights. He has nightmares each night as the images of his crew flash before his eyes and he's overwhelmed with guilt and with shame. And he's carrying this albatross around his neck as a symbol of penance, a symbol of his guilt. And so I don't know if you know where that expression comes from that we get today. Somebody has an albatross across their neck, an albatross around their neck. It's an idiom, it's a metaphor you got a cross to bear. you got a major obstacle in your life. you got to do penance. You've got guilt and shame you've got to deal with. And you see, many people struggle with guilt, with shame, with things they've done wrong, and they may try to get rid of the guilt and shame. And maybe you've ever done this before. I promise you, God, I'll never do it again. Don't raise your hand if you've ever done that. Probably all of us here. I promise you, God. Or maybe you make a resolution. God, next time I'll just try harder. Or maybe you go to a priest and you, and you confess your sin and you get absolution. Or maybe you even come to a pastor and you pour out your heart thinking somehow the pastor is going to forgive you of your sins. Or maybe you actually go physically hurt yourself because you've, you feel like I've done something so bad I, I need to have some type of punishment. It's called penance. See, penance is this idea that you must be punished for your sins. 
Whether it's by uh, getting, giving yourself 30 lashes or whether it's going without food or water or whether it's saying a few Hail Marys, it's, it's this cosmetic way that you deal with guilt, you deal with shame by you thinking you have to do something to get punished. You do penance. You bargain with God. I'll never do it again. You try harder and harder and you basically in your own strength try to get rid of the mess that you've gotten yourself into by doing penance, whatever method you choose. Now, why do I bring up the issue of penance and having an albatross across your neck? Well, today I want to address a topic that a lot of Christians may not fully understand, but it is a teaching that is central to the gospel, and I think it's something we need to be reminded of. So here's the question we're going to ask today. What exactly is genuine repentance? Not penance, repentance. What's repentance? Is it different than penance? Is it something you did just once when you got saved? Is it even a requirement for salvation? What does it mean to repent? The very first word of the gospel out of Jesus' mouth when he came preaching was repent. In his very first words, out of his mouth, in Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Very first words out of Jesus' mouth, repent and believe the gospel. The very last words out of Jesus' mouth when he's sending his disciples off into the world to do the mission of the gospel. In Luke chapter 24, 46 through 47, he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The first words out of Jesus' mouth, repent. The last words out of Jesus' mouth, preach repentance. You go into the book of Acts, what do they do? What do the disciples do? They preach repentance. Paul preached this at Mars Hill when he's talking to a bunch of, of philosophers in Acts 17.30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands it. So the first word of the gospel is to repent. This is how the Protestant Reformation was started. This is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. October 31st, 1517 was when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany. And of those 95 theses, here's the very first sentence of the 95 theses. It's this, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, in saying repent and believe the gospel, meant that the whole life of the faithful to be an act of repentance. So the Protestant Reformation was birthed out of this whole idea of repenting. Jesus told us to repent. Paul told us to repent. The Protestant Reformation was birthed out of repentance. What is repentance? So I want to tackle this with three different angles this morning, three different ways we're going to go about doing that. Number one, we're just going to look at what the Greek words themselves mean when the Bible talks about repentance. Number two, we're going to look at what some godly theologians and, and historians and, and believers of the past have said about it. But where we're going to spend the most time this morning is I'm going to give us seven marks of genuine repentance. What does it mean to truly repent? So first of all, 
for this morning. What does the Bible say about the word? What does the biblical word for repentance actually mean? There's two words in the Greek text where we get the word repent or to turn. One is the Greek word metanoia or metanoeo. It means to have a change of mind, a change of heart that leads to an actual change of lifestyle. It's having a whole new mindset about who you are and then being so influenced by that change of mind that it leads to an actual changed life a comprehensive change in attitude. It really focuses on a mind shift. Your whole mind shifts about who you think you are, who you are, in light of the word of God, in light of the sin in your life, and you have a mind shift that leads to a total transformation. That's the word metanoia, repentance. There's another Greek word. I don't expect you to remember these Greek words, but it's epistrepho. That's the word turn. That word means to make a 180-degree turn away from sin and towards Christ. So there's two words in the Greek text. One involves a mind change, and one involves an actual turning. So if you take these two Greek words together, and and you look at how they're used in the Scriptures, and we're going to look at that here in just a moment, it means to be so having this change of mind and heart, you've been confronted with something, it's changed your whole outlook, that it actually means that you turn from that and you turn towards Christ. It, it means a total radical shift in your thoughts, in your hearts, and in your actions, in your outward life. So that's, that's what the words mean in the original text. Okay, second. How do faithful voices from the past define repentance? Now these are not inspired. These are just men. But I think it's important to go back and read men that are much smarter and much more spiritual than we are, or we would ever hope to be, who have written documents, who have written works that have stood the test of time over generations. And I've been very, very much helped by John Calvin and his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He's got multiple chapters on repentance, but he gets down into the the depths of really what repentance is. Here's one of the things he says about it. John Calvin says, It's a real conversion of our life unto God, proceeding from sincere and serious fear of God, a real conversion. He also says it's an internal renovation of mind, bringing with it true amendment of life. It's a total transformation. It's going to bring about a a totally new life. Thomas Watson has written the book, The Doctrine of Repentance. It is the best book on repentance that is out there. And I appreciate it because it was written in 1688. Doesn't have a lot of psychobabble that we have nowadays. He's one of my favorite Puritans. Here's what he says. He probably has the best definition of repentance. Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. You're inwardly humbled, but it's visible. It's total change. It's a reformation. It's, It's a changed life. Charles Spurgeon said this, and you guys know what I think about Spurgeon. A lot of good things to say. He says this, To repent does mean a change of mind, but then it is a thorough change of understanding and all that's in the mind. It includes an illumination, an illumination of the Holy Spirit, and I think it includes a discovery of sin and a hatred of it, without which there can be hardly any genuine repentance. We must not, I think, undervalue repentance. It's a blessed grace of God the Holy Spirit, and it is absolutely necessary unto salvation. And Charles Hodge says, 
the word does mean to change a mind, but as a result of reflection, as you've reflected upon this. So it's this whole idea of an inward change that brings about visible results. Now, I could just stop right there and say, okay, here's what the Greek word says, and here's what theologians have said, and now you've got a definition. But what I want to do this morning for the remainder of our time is look at seven marks of genuine repentance because we have to have a comprehensive picture. So what we're going to be doing is looking at a lot of passages of Scripture that teach the doctrine of repentance to get a composite picture of what this doctrine truly is. And so we're going to look at seven of them. And so now we're actually going to get to your Bible. So here's number one. The first mark of repentance is repentance is a gracious gift of God. Repentance is a gracious gift of God. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, and we're just going to look at snippets here. I don't have time to give the full... This is not, by the way, this is not an expository sermon. And one person I read in seminary says, you're allowed to do that once to give a topical sermon. And then after that, ask forgiveness. So this is a topical sermon on repentance I'm not going to be diving into an extended passage of Scripture. We're going to be looking at a topic, looking at different Scriptures to build a composite. So, so don't freak out if we're jumping all over the place. We are jumping all over the place, but there's a purpose for that. Okay? So Acts 5, 30-31. Acts chapter 5, 30-31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. This is Peter preaching, by the way. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Maybe your translation says to grant repentance. God gave repentance to Israel. In other words, it was a gift that God gave to them. He gave them repentance. Now, we're going to see that exact same expression used in Acts chapter 11. So remember that in your mind. God gave repentance to Israel. Now turn to Acts chapter 11, just a few verses over. Acts chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. Now the ministry in the book of Acts is extended to the Gentiles. So the first part of the book of Acts is a ministry to the Jews. And so Peter's preaching and says, God has granted to the the Israelites repentance. Now let's see what happens as the story unfolds. Acts chapter 11, verses 17 through 18. Acts chapter 11, 17 through 18. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ... Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Same expression. God granted repentance to Israel. God granted repentance to the Gentiles. It does not say that God gave them an opportunity to repent. That would be true. It doesn't say God gave them the possibility to repent. That would be true. It actually says God gave them repentance, which assumes something. It assumes that without God's intervention, you can't repent. It's a gift of God. So if you're dead in sin, if you are spiritually separated from God, and you can't make yourself alive, and you can't cause yourself to be born again, God must do an inward work in your heart. So the Holy Spirit must come and grant you The ability, the supernatural ability, the spiritual ability to repent. So if anybody here is going to repent, it's not because one day you decided to repent. It's because God granted that to you. He gave it to you as a gift. God was the one that was birthing repentance in your heart. 
And notice what type of repentance it is. It's a repentance that leads to life. It's a spiritual repentance. Now, 2 Timothy 2, 25-26 has the exact same expression. It'll be on your screen. You don't need to turn there. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Exact same wording as we saw in Acts. God may grant them repentance. Now notice the divine prerogative in this passage of Scripture. God may perhaps grant them repentance, which means what? God may perhaps not. It's up to God whether he's going to do it. But notice what the repentance leads to. Put that that Scripture back up there, Junior, for just a moment. Notice what the Scripture says about what repentance leads to. It leads to a knowledge of the truth. It leads to you coming to your senses, and it leads you out of, yeah, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of their truth. So repentance means, okay, I have some knowledge here. The truth has confronted me. It also means you come to your senses, and it also means that you escape from the devil. So part of repentance is this whole idea that God gives it to you. God has to grant you repentance. The ancient church father Chrysostom in the 300s AD said this about repentance. He says, Repentance is a medicine for the cure of sin, a gift bestowed from above, an admirable virtue, a grace surpassing the power of laws. It's a grace surpassing the power of laws. In other words, it's a supernatural grace that God gives you deep in your heart to be able to repent. So first and foremost, it's a gift of God. Now, number two, Repentance involves an acute awareness of sin. An acute awareness of sin. Now, go back in Acts to chapter 2 for a moment. I know we're going backwards. That's okay. Go back to chapter 2. This is Pentecost. Peter stands up, preaches a message in the second person, you crucified Jesus. Not very seeker sensitive. He gets in their face. He preaches the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pick up in chapter 2, verse 36. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Notice what happens here. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice what happened when when they were confronted with their sin. It says they were cut to the heart. That word is very rare in the original language. It means to have experienced emotional distress. Extreme emotional distress. And notice there was no altar call where, where Peter had to manipulate them to come down to the front. Let's pay 25 verses of just I as I am to see if these guys are going to... Where does the invitation come from? What do the people say? The people cry out, what must we do? They were cut to the heart. See, that's what happens when repentance comes. You are overwhelmed with your own sin acutely. It cuts you to the heart. You're exposed. You're laid bare. Your conscience is pricked. And all you can cry out is, what must I do? And notice Peter doesn't say, just feel sorry for your sins. 
It's okay that you've been cut to the heart. No, notice what he says. He gives a strong command there. He says, repent, repent. So before you can even repent, you've got to have an acute awareness of your sins from which you need to repent from. An acute awareness of those sins. Our friend Artaxerdia has said this. It's an about face in one's thinking that produces an about face in one's living. A radical reorientation that is nothing short of conversion. Now, Martin Luther gives a great a great illustration. He says if repentance is going to happen, it has to hurt you. You've got to be hurt in order to repent. And he gives this illustration. If a tree gets struck by lightning and it's split in half, the branches fall on the ground. If you as a man or a woman are struck by lightning, what happens to you? You fall on the ground. But where are you looking up? You're looking up to heaven for help. And Martin Luther says that needs to happen before you repent. You need to be struck to the ground like lightning on your back so that when you look up, all you have is Jesus. It's got to be this acute emotional awareness of your personal sin against God. You're cut to the heart. Number three, repentance entails godly sorrow for sin. Godly sorrow. Notice I said godly sorrow. For there is such a thing as worldly sorrow. Psalm 38, 18. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But why are you sorry for your sin? That's a question you've got to ask. Why are you sorry for your sin? Are you sorry you got caught? Are you sorry you got to deal with some bad consequences? Are you sorry that it's uncomfortable? Why are you sorry for your sin? Are you sorry for your sin because it's sin against a holy God? See, there's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, and Paul will explain that. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 9 through 10, listen to the words of Paul. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What does godly grief lead to? True repentance. Godly grief says, I am sorry for my sin because it's sin, and it's offensive to a holy God, and I've sinned against my God, and I don't care what consequences I have to face. I don't care if it's uncomfortable. I don't care that I got caught. My main concern is I've sinned against God, and it grieves my heart because worldly sorrow says, I'm, I'm sorry that I sinned. I'll never do it again, God, but you have no intention of, of actually repenting. You're just going to keep doing what you're doing, but you may cry some crocodile tears because you got caught, or you're uncomfortable, think about Judas for a moment. Was Judas remorseful or repentant? Did Judas cry? Yes. Was Judas repentant? No. Or what about Esau? Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about Esau. Hebrews 12, 16 through 17. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, 
who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau had a, a sorrow that he gave up his birthright and a sorrow that he'd missed out on the blessing, but there was no true repentance. It was just a worldly type of sorrow. So repentance leads to a godly sorrow. You're sorry that you've sinned because you've sinned and you've offended a holy God. Not because you got caught, not because you have to face the consequences, not because it's uncomfortable, but because it's sin against a holy God. Which leads to number four. Not just grief, Not just grief and sorrow, but number four, repentance incites a holy hatred for sin. You've got to hate sin. You know you've repented when you begin to hate that sin. Not just sorrowful for the sin, but you hate that sin. You find it ugly and detestable, and you are shocked that it's living right inside you. Psalm 119, 128. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. You know God's birth repentance in your heart when you can say, I hate every false way. I hate my sin. Ezekiel chapter 36, 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Do you hate the fact that sin resides deep in your heart? Do you hate it? Do you want to get rid of it? Not only are you grieving it, but do you, do you actually hate sin? See, in order for you to hate sin, you've got to pull that sin out and look at it for what it is and deal with it. A lot of people bury the sin. A lot of people just kind of glance over the sin. You've got to pull that sin out. And you've got to take a hard and close look at that sin and you've got to see it for what it is and you've got to begin to deal with it and you've got to realize it's offensive against the Holy God. It is ugly against the Holy God and it came from deep inside your heart and you begin to hate it. That's why Paul can tell us in Romans chapter 7, verse 13, what the purpose of the law is. The purpose of the Ten Commandments, the purpose of the law is to be like a mirror to show us our sin so that we know truly how sinful sin is. In, in, in Romans seven thirteen. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You see, when you begin to repent, sin becomes sinful beyond measure. It becomes exceedingly sinful and you begin to hate it and you begin to grieve it. But not only do you grieve it and you hate it, but here's number five. Repentance energizes a confession of specific sins. It energizes a confession of specific sins. Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin got to confess it got to come clean with it proverbs 28 13 whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy see here's the problem oftentimes when we deal with sin we're very good at being generic lord please forgive me for my sins and you go on your merry way 
If you're truly going to repent and deal with sin, you've got to get specific. And I'm not saying that you have to get a book and journal out and write down all your sins, but you've got to get specific. Lord, please forgive me for the lust deep in my heart that's causing me to look at pornography. Lord, help me deal with the anger deep in my heart that's causing me to backbite that person at work and to be jealous. Lord, help me to deal with the greed in my heart when I see my neighbor getting what, what, all these toys and all these things and I can't get it and, and the jealousy rises in my heart. Lord, you've got to be specific in your confession. It doesn't do anybody good to be generic. You know you're truly repenting when you get very specific. So you've got to be acutely aware of the sin. You've got to be pricked. You've got to grieve the sin. You've got to hate the sin. You've got to confess that sin. But that's not enough. That's not repentance. That's confession. Here's repentance. Number six. Repentance results in a lifelong turning from sin. Remember the words for repentance that are used in the scriptures? It means to have a change of mind, a change of heart that leads to a change of lifestyle. To actually turn from that sin. Isaiah 55, 7 gives us a great definition of repentance because it addresses two areas. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way. What's his way? That's your actions. That's your your behavior, your lifestyle. If you're living a wicked lifestyle, forsake that. Forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. It starts in the mind. You've got to forsake those thoughts, it's, it's a change of mind. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of ways. So let the wicked man forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him, for God will abundantly pardon. Notice the blessing of, of repentance. When you, when you turn from those thoughts and you turn from those ways, you find abundance of pardon from the Lord. You find that mercy. You find his arms open wide. Joel 2.13 Rend your hearts, not your garments. Now, back then, they would tear their garments when they were mourning. They would tear their garments when they were upset. They would tear their garments when somebody died. And Joel's saying, don't tear your garments. Rip up your heart. Get your heart torn up. Get your heart right with the Lord. Return to the Lord. It'd be so overwhelmed with sin that you, your heart's cut. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. That's the blessing of repentance. When you repent, you find compassion, you find mercy, you find the steadfast love of the Lord. That's why John the Baptist can say in Luke chapter 3, verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you're truly repenting, it will show forth in fruit. It will be demonstrable. There will be true change. In other words, you will be sorry for your sin. You will hate your sin. You will confess your sin, but you will turn from that sin. Now, I'm not talking perfection here that you're never going to sin again, but I'm talking about a total lifestyle change where you're no longer walking in those ways, you're no longer having those thoughts, but you're walking in a totally new manner of life. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Paul says, For they themselves report concerning to us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God 
from idols to serve the living and true God. That's repentance. You turn from the idols in faith to God. Because all of us are idolaters. All of us have idols deep in our hearts. And repentance means we turn from those and we turn to serve the living God. Acts 3, 19-20 has the two Greek words together in one text. It's got metanoeo and epistrepho. I don't expect you to memorize those, but repent, metanoeo, therefore, and turn back, epistrepho. Both words there. Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus. I love this passage of Scripture because it talks about when you repent, you get times of refreshing. When you're not repentant, you're all guilt-ridden, you're bound up in shame, you're feeling angst. And the moment that you begin to hate that sin and confess that sin and get rid of that sin, the, 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 the blessings of the Lord begin to flow in your life and, and it's times of refreshing. His grace refreshes you. Now, this is a lifelong process. It's not like, when I was 15, I repented. Well, that's great. I'm glad you repented at 15. Are you repenting now? Well, I repented when I was six. That's great. Are you repenting now? Listen to the wisdom of John Calvin again. This is a long quote, but I think a lot of wisdom. Here's what he says. This renewal indeed, this repentance, is not accomplished in a moment, a day, or a year, but by uninterrupted, sometimes even by slow progress. God abolishes the remains of carnal corruption in his elect, cleanses them from pollution, and consecrates them as his temples, restoring all their inclinations to real purity so that during their whole lives they may practice repentance and know that death is the only termination of this warfare. Get his point? Your whole life is ongoing, gradual, habitual, grueling repentance. And the day you stop repenting is the day you die. It's a lifelong process of repenting. Richard Owen Roberts says, true repentance is not a single act, but a continual attitude. Spurgeon said this about repentance. The higher the faith, the deeper the repentance The saints most ripe for heaven is the most aware of his own shortcomings. So here's number seven. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. If I were to ask you in this room if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, most of you would say, yeah, I'm a believer. We use that term, right? We're believers. We're believers. We may need to change our terminology. Not only are we believers, but we're repenters. We don't often use that, do you? Are you a believer? Oh, I'm a believer. Are you a repenter? Hmm. Never thought about that. We should be marked also as a believer and as a repenter. You see, it's saving faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. One is positive, one is negative. So think of a coin with two sides. Repentance is the negative side. Repentance is the turning away, the the forsaking, the grieving of the sin. You're, you're, You're getting rid of the sin. And then the flip side, the positive side, the other side of the coin is is saving faith. You're turning from and you're turning to. 
They work together. You turn from sin, you turn towards Jesus. You turn from your idolatry, you turn toward the living God. They're two sides of the same coin. And that's why Paul in Acts 20, 21 can say this. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have faith without repentance. You can't have repentance without faith. They go hand in hand. Are you a believer? Most of us say, yeah, I'm a believer. Are you a repenter? Well, I did that one time, Sean, when I was 15 at youth camp. Great. Are you a repenter? I wonder how often we are known by our repentance. Is it the whole attitude of your life? Are you marked by repentance? Are you always repenting? I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about penance. I'm saying, do you on a daily, even by moment, basis, are you so confronted with your sin that you begin to grieve it, you begin to hate it, you begin to specifically confess it, and then you begin to leave it. And then over time, you're changed. You find yourself no longer struggling with those sins that you used to struggle with because God has given you repentance. And some of you may be thinking this. You know what? I've sure gotten away with a lot in my life and God hasn't thumped me yet. Have you ever wondered why God hasn't come back in judgment yet? Do you wonder why some of your lost friends are still on planet Earth and God hasn't sent them to hell? Have you ever thought about that? Why does God delay? Why does God show kindness to you and to me? We sang it earlier. Here's the reason. Romans 2, 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is being kind with you, not so you can keep on sinning. I've met too many Christians who don't have any struggles, don't, don't really fear the Lord. They keep sinning and sinning and sinning because they have this attitude. I love to sin. God loves to forgive. It's a wonderful relationship. Let's just keep it that way. That is not the way Christianity works. God is kind to you God is gracious to you, not as an excuse for you to continue to sin, but to lead you to repentance. The reason he's being kind to you is so that you will repent. I don't know if and when that time comes, but there may come a time in your life where God shuts down the opportunity to repent. His kindness may come to an end. Not for the believer, but for the unbeliever, if you're here today, there may come a time where God says, I've been kind, I've been kind, I've been kind. It's leading you to repentance, and he stops that kindness. So we need to get it in our heads. We need to repent. We need to turn. We need to grieve that sin. We need to hate that sin. We need to pull that sin out in the open. We've got to deal with that sin. We need to specifically confess that sin. We need to forsake that sin. We need to leave that sin. We need to have a total mind change that leads to a visible reformation in our lives. Where others around you can see evidences of your repentance. So here's the question I have for us today, church. Would we all, myself included, be marked by ongoing, 
daily, minute by minute, genuine repentance. To the glory of God and to the good of our souls. Are you a repenter? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Hang out there and let you deal with it between you and the Lord. In just a few moments of silence that we have together as a church family, do business with the Lord in the quietness of this moment and spend time in prayer to Him. Lord Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, would we be genuine repenters? Lord, if there's anybody in this room that's never repented for the very first time and come to you in saving faith, would today be their day of salvation? Help us to be the people you've called us to be. Help us to grieve our sin, to hate our sin, to confess our sin, to turn from our sin and be lifelong, continual, everyday repenters for your glory alone. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.